I'm currently actually trying to review you just for. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you might want to wait until the end of the show. Yeah. No, exactly. It's I'm a, it's a dynamic review. It's like watching politics in one of these focus groups, listening to it, the debate I'm with a little dial down as you talk. Yeah, the little dials. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, yeah if I yeah, use the right dial words. Reviews. Yeah, I, we we need we, we need Luntzen here to kind of tell us the right words to use. I love that death tax. <laughs> That's his specialty, right? So, uh, you, you know, um, you go by Dave or David. I'm sorry. You go by Dave or David. Uh, Dave, Dave, Dave. Okay, so uh, you are our first guest that I don't that I've never met before. Really? Yeah. Wow. Cool. If you don't count Joe in the first episode, <laughs> no. Um, no one so, counts. So, Joe, Joe, do you want to do the introduction? We might as well get started. You say we you don't like introductions. I don't. Okay. So I'll cut it out, but do it anyway, do it anyway. (laughs) Uh, So joining us today is Dave Hoffman, who is a law professor uh, at uh, at Temple uh, Law School. Uh, What is the, uh, how does Dan Kahan pronounce his last name? Kahan. Dan Kahan uh, at at Yale has a project called the Cultural Cognition Project, and I know Dave participates in that as well. Uh, And uh, he teaches contract law and... Uh, but that's not the reason we're having him here today. Oh, I don't know about that. I might have. I think I have some questions. You have about some contract that. questions. I've got some contract questions. I have some speed trap law questions. Oh, speed trap law—that's one of and our growing specialties. But I have a question about peppercorns, oh, which apparently is a contract law thing that you have to talk about—is peppercorns. Do, are you going to ask it? Or you not gonna... yet. I'm oh, saving, saving that. Okay. That's the juicy and then, stuff. And then, what is the ostensibly the reason that we had Dave on the show, or, or a reason um, was was what? <laughs> why don't you say what it is you well, know what it is i it was you so dave you started uh you started a blog at some point uh, uh yes uh and, which is well known in the in the legal academia circle and maybe which beyond is, which is to say it's not particularly well known no yes. no it's, it's world, world famous <laughs> uh the concurring opinions blog right yes what now what was the idea uh, so one of the things we want to talk about today is um not necessarily in response to um uh, kind of Nick Kristoff's um, tweet and stuff a while ago about the need for academics to engage the broader public more than they are. I mean, we can talk about it in that context too. But uh, I thought we talked about this. He used that cringy phrase, "public intellectual," didn't he? Something yeah, about he that. Did, he did. Yeah. He did. That phrase is very cringy to me. It makes me cringe. I yeah. don't, I'm not sure why. We could talk about that at some point. I think it's the intellectual part. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, it's just such a. It's such a. Um, it's a phrase that says, "I'm about to be." A, a bit of a gas bag and so i want you to call me a public intellectual it just um it's awful isn't it i uh, let's well let's 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 get to that but we're not responding to that in particular that you not said in we're particular. not responding i, I want to kind of know like you know why do um what role do we play what what first of all you know a lot of what we're talking about on these shows has been what you know our one of the themes is uh what is the role of legal scholarship you know within society within the academy itself uh, what kind? What should we be doing uh, with law in general? What should we be doing with the study of law? What should we be doing as teachers? I mean, all this is, I think, are, are um, we have a certain kind of, in the discipline, just a tad more existential angst than they do in most other disciplines, I think. Yeah. And, which is kind of fun in a way, because I think it's less limiting. There are so many things that we can do, so many ways we can perceive what we do. And, and, um, and Dave, you know, as someone who founded a, a pretty influential blog, I was... Curious, first of all, you know, what made you do it? Why'd you decide to do it? Um, so Concurring Opinions, I think, is the third or fourth blog, uh, law blog, I was on. Um, the first one and, and two were when I was still uh, in practice. Um, and they were really to get to explore ideas that obviously you don't get to, to do day to day as a lawyer to keep you know, keep my mind going on, on scholarship I'd read in law school and, and react in a little bit of a more free way than the, um, the, the you know, regular briefing schedule really permits. Yeah. Uh, I then joined Prosblog when I joined the academy um, uh, in 2004. It's an awfully pretentious way of saying when I got a job as a law professor, I, uh, <laughs> I joined Prosblog, um, yeah. which was useful. I was on there, I think, for about a year. Um, and then uh, Dan Solov, uh, Kaimi Wenger, and I all split off uh, uh, to um, form concurring opinions, I think, in 2005. 
uh, or, or early 2006. The exact dates kind of escape me. So um, you not, you not only about you not only uh, you not only you not only therefore uh, help found a blog. You help participate in a great schism. Yes. Wow. Yeah, I don't know that it was such an exciting great schism, but it was a it was a it was a break. Um, uh, you know, which was just sort of a little bit about control, uh, a little bit about you know have, wanting to have our own look and our own you know set of rules. Prof's blog was uh, is a great a great forum. Um, you know, going in its own direction. I think we wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction, um, and so um, we started there. I think that the but the reason for all three blogs and why I continue to sometimes uh, write blog posts is you know really just to. Um, like, you know, most of us who join the Academy, we're not really doing it for the money. We're doing it because we like to think and write and, and blogs provide, continue to provide uh, just an alternative forum, one that isn't totally in your control. So that's a very attractive part of it. Probably the same reason you guys have a podcast is just a different, a different um, channel for, you know, things you've been, you've been thinking about the, you know, the self-promotion part of it's great. The visibility part of it's great, but um, I think it's really just a, a printing press um, that, you know, that's that's super cheap, um, pretty stable most of the time, and and can 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 give you the opportunity to engage with an audience. Although that's never really been my thing as much. What what has been your thing? You think just just an outlet, um, an yeah, intellectual I just, outlet? I mean, I think that the great purpose of the blog for me has been um, if I have ideas that I don't really know, I've thought about enough yet to write into articles. I don't really want to invest in, in them as articles, but they're sort of ideas I think are nifty. Um, I think it provides a, a really short and easy ramp-up process to explore them and write. So I've almost every article I've written started as a blog post. May, most of my blog posts obviously didn't end up as articles. Um, so I, I try to I try as much as possible to come up with ideas I think are interesting and just write them down. Um, and over time, I think I've moved farther away from the what I think I'd spent more time on in the beginning, which was sort of law school gossip, which is still a uh, big part of a lot of blogs, um, but increasingly less interesting to me. Well, Dave, what do you think the um, the value, once you've got an idea in a blog post and have done some initial research, what is the value added over finishing that into an article? Obviously it will vary, but it, it seems to me, I ask this only because I see, um, you know, I've seen quite a few articles which maybe would be just as good if they had stayed as somewhat longish blog posts. <laughs> right? <laughs> to- I mean, totally true, right? Yeah. I just, it's funny. I, it's funny you guys asked me to, to do this. I just came from a conference at Northeastern on this sort of relatively similar topic, uh, you know, the next generation of law scholarship. And um, that's, that's really my thought is that many, 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 many articles would be better if either not written or just written with fewer words. Um, and... Uh, One answer is zero words, right? Yeah, or zero <laughs> words, exactly. Not written or zero or fewer right. words. Uh, so zero words or fewer words. And, you know, I think that, so what's the, what's the advantage? Like what, I mean, the real question is like, what are, what things deserve to be articles? And so, right. um, you know, sometimes their idea, I think is just too good and there's too much richness of it to, to sort of explore in, you know, four or five or six paragraphs, which is the ideal blog post length. The paper with, so you mentioned, I, I write with, I write with Dan Kahan the paper that initiated that working relationship, um, which is uh, whose highs are you going to believe? That paper started as a blog post I wrote for concurring opinions, um, which came. I wrote that blog post the day the opinion came out, the Scott versus Harris opinion, and I said I thought there was some interesting ways you could think about that opinion if you thought about it from a cultural cognition perspective. I sent that to Dan Kahan, and he said we should write it, and I agreed. Yeah. You know, there was there was more there to say than four to five or six paragraphs. Um, you know, there there definitely, unfortunately, are times I've written articles that I was like, you know, I maybe should have, maybe I should have kept this at the blog post length. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The, the, you know, the output didn't feel like it was worth the time. You know, as, as everyone knows, you know, articles are a ton of work, a ton of time. And, you know, you can get pretty far into that process without, um, sometimes, um, without really evaluating whether it's worth it. And so there are, you know... Um, well, that's one of my, that's one of my problems, I think, with... Um uh, legal scholarship in general, and um, well, there, you bring there, there are a couple of points that what you say brings up. I mean, one is um, um, you know kind of I wouldn't say disturbing, but a lack of rigor, um, meaning that if you have an idea, you can always turn it into an article, right? You can always finish an article, and there aren't going to be you know, there's not going to be anybody to say almost uh, for for most such ideas that that's just wrong, right? Um, and 
given the nature of the enterprise, right? And, and then uh, similarly, uh, there isn't also there, there also isn't a um, a built in mechanism to say that that's enough for this idea. You can always make you can always finish an idea, and you can always make it arbitrarily long. And uh, and so what people tend to do, if you have whether you have one, two, three, or four ideas, whether they are simple or complex, it becomes a roughly sixty to seventy five page article with about three hundred footnotes. Like, because that is the format. Um, blog posts, you say the ideal blog post is around four to six paragraphs. and um, But I'm wondering about that because, you know, I, I started a little blog. Sometimes I write things which are law-related, sometimes not. The, the nice thing for me about writing in a blog format is that I have no preconceived idea of what the proper length is, in part because I'm not necessarily trying to amass a regular reading audience i mean if people like it that's great um uh but if but if they don't that's great too um so i just kind of treat it like it's an outlet it's it's in a way an overflow uh like an overflow valve for ideas you know um ideas which i wouldn't otherwise get a chance to to get to and and put in um the time necessary to turn something into an article where where that time that i'm talking about isn't necessarily you know, quality time because there's yeah. a lot of just BS in finishing an article. As you yeah, know. there's there's definitely some. No, I, I mean I I didn't mean like categorically you can't write longer or shorter posts, but if the goal is to create an audience, which certainly that was the goal for the first you know eight or nine years of the blog's existence, um, then I don't I don't think that variable posts work as well. Um, um, so yeah, and, and and partly because of the weird format of the blog, the reverse chronology format, the you know the the if you have a lot of other authors, you want to sort of be um, careful and collegial about how you treat it. You know, you basically right, are all right. trying to compete for the head of the space. Um, and so if you write a long post, it push them down. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's, yeah, you know, um, there's something that's really good about the blog discipline in terms of making sure you know and have to be forced to know what's interesting about the thing you're thinking about. Um, and, and getting it to distill it. I've gotten a lot better at writing introductions since I became a blogger. I'm not sure I became yeah. better as a long-form writer, but I got a lot better as introductions. And as it turns out, a lot of you editors really only read the introduction. So um, it helped. Well, introductions sometimes. I mean, there are many articles for which the introduction contains the ideas, and that's uh, that's all you need. Yeah. Um, so, well, go ahead, Joe. You... I, I just, I wonder about um, the, the, the form, and uh, it does seem like journalists from print media have done uh, a good job using the form as well. So, or, or that many of the people who have created successful blog followings were m- journalists in some other form or fashion first. So there's something about the writing, the, the short, you know, uh, I know what's interesting as I sit down to write it, I write it, I keep it short. Um, I'm, I'm flowing them out in a, in a particularly regular fashion so people can come to expect and predict basically what they're going to get, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it does seem to lend itself to that, or at least that's been some of its success. Yeah, uh, I agree. So we're using a form that if you're blogging, you're using a form that uh, really plays to the strengths of, it seems like, plays to the strengths of professional journalists. And, and it could be that you know, some professional journalism values would would be a good thing for more law professors to uh, to try to appreciate, understand, incorporate. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe not. That's an interesting idea. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that there's something. I mean, I thought a, a little bit about sort of how the um, whether the interaction between blogging and sort of being a legal professor, which I think is sort of what your the question sort of goes to. You know, there's definitely um, some cons, I would I would say, some pros and some cons. I think that the big I mean just in general, not for particular people, right? So particular people you can you can make your bones on blogging or you can embarrass yourself and that's sort of neither here nor there. And Christian says, which is I think is exactly right, you can use it as an outlet, a safety valve, which is a great a great sort of way to think about it. Um, for the profession I think that there's an you know one reason that I think that most people think law schools are in trouble um, is because so many law professors write publicly about law schools. Um, you know, there's just so much more content about law schools than there are, for example, about other parts of the, the academy. And the content's so much more public and so much more regularly updated. Um, law professors, I think, really um, in some ways dominate um, a particular set of um, 
conversations. And so, you know, Bollock, for example. Um, and so, you know, you're right that they're, um, you know, it, it's sort of maybe the journalism thing is, is part of it, um, that there are overlaps in values, overlaps in skills. But, you know, law, law professors sort of role as bloggers has, in my view anyway, um, really exposed the legal academy to outside criticism and outside praise in a way that other folk parts of the academy maybe aren't quite as exposed to. Yeah, Duncan Black went on a little bit of a tirade against law bloggers last night on Twitter. I don't know if you saw it, but um, you know, he blogs as Atrios. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I, I read him, but I didn't read the Twitter stream. Yeah, basically saying that law professors are the dumbest people on campus, um, more or less. <laughs> and, uh, and, and part of it has to do with the inherent lack of rigor in yeah. the law academy and that we're too dumb to know that we don't. And, you know, I think he, he apologized and said he was painting with too broad a brush, but, um, you know, and he was responding to, uh, Volokh's latest on the Washington post. Um, so I, I there's something to what you say. I mean, there, and, and this is, um, I guess I wanted to get to the kind of the second issue, which is related to that. Um, uh, for me, um, that th- two things seem to be conflated here. So one is writing form, the form in which, uh, or, or the, uh, the medium uh, over which we're speaking. And the other is um, whether we're speaking to each other or to the public or something in between. And when people think about law blogging, I think they oftentimes think about writing, which is for the public in blog form. And when we talk to each other, we write in article form or I guess book form or maybe and I did shortest symposium form. And to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, what would make more sense is to, un- is to kind of explode this kind of qualitative distinction between a blog and an article, uh, that there are just writings of different lengths and they are addressed to different audiences. Um, and I, I, we can kind of get into what I think, uh, or, or what you guys think about what some of the reasons are um, for the canonical article form, you know, or, or, and the canonical book form. Um, and I think these are just out, I think these are outmoded forms, which result from the way that information was disseminated 50 or 60 years ago or a hundred years ago, uh, which no longer applies. So there's no reason that we can't talk to each other in, I don't know, um, the equivalent of five pages, but over a, a blog type thing, uh, or 40 pages or 45 pages or 95 pages or 110 pages. And the very idea of pages, you know, <laughs> is, uh, is not necessarily something which isn't entirely, you know, relevant anymore. Um, but it does seem like the, like the law blogging sphere um, is assumed inherently to address the public. And is that because the public just has access to law blogs, whereas uh, the papers we write for each other have traditionally been through, you know, uh, uh, law reviews accessible originally, I guess, only on Westlaw and then and then Hein Online and then SSRN, I guess, you know, makes them public. And so now you can actually link articles in a in a public debate um so I'm not, i don't I would, know is, I would, am i making any sense at all i don't know i would maybe fight the hypo i mean i'm not i i don't know that what you're saying is true for a lot of folks who write on law blogs i think a lot of folks who write on law blogs really write about like is it okay to wear you know uh multicolored socks on the first day you teach um or you know who's yeah. moving to what school in three years uh or what's the relationship between ssrn downloads and and u.s news rank when controlling for you know um, well, who knows what the color of the building? I mean, I, I, the the amount. I mean, if you obviously, it's it's sort of a little hard to know because the, we haven't done a census for a long time. But the amount of pretty ridiculous navel gazing triviality on your average law blog is pretty high. Um, this is like and, the faculty lounge idea taken online. Well, yeah. Well, I don't want to call. Yeah, I don't want to say particular places, but yeah. I mean, a, a lot, a lot of a lot. No, of, I mean, I, I didn't mean that in terms of this. There is a. <laughs> blog called the faculty lounge I, what i mean it's like what it's like law it's like law school water cooler conversation taken online if you like um yeah yeah i think that's a lot of it and i think that's a lot of it in part because most many many law professors have very i mean are not don't have things to say that they either want to share in a public forum like that because they're they're risk averse and so they want to make sure that their articles which their professional persona are, are tied up in are really tight or they're not writing articles. And so in either event, the only thing really that they could say in public is things about what they know, which is law school politics, um, <laughs> which is, you know, grim. Um, I, I think then for other folks, and it sounds like you're one of them, you know, for other folks, they're, they're using blogs as a way to just 
um, to self-publish. And honestly, self-publishing is almost not different at all than, than publishing in any given law review since there's, whatever, 5,000 law reviews. And right. so if you send out literally anything, you should be able to get a placement somewhere. Um, and law blogging is a significantly less um, ritualized form of abasement than you know, trying to convince the 110th ranked journal that they should give you an offer so that you can use it to get to the 90th ranked journal um, you know, and maybe get to the 50th ranked journal if you're, if you're lucky enough to have someone answer your email. I mean, the whole process right. is so embarrassing for, for so many and, so, and so, um, so totally screwed up that law blogging is pretty attractive, right? You, you, can, you can be an intellectual without having to, you know, kiss up to 25-year-olds. Um, right, right. So there is something really to the idea that because our discipline lacks rigor, which by which I think Atios probably means gatekeeping, um, doesn't, doesn't really have gaping in a real way, blogging is is very attractive um yeah i mean i think it's too you know i i, I took that to mean two things one is uh kind of a, a lack of a procedural peer-reviewed structure right so there's a certain lack of accountability but also kind of an objective lack of rigorous method i mean um, but those two things are totally related i mean I, yeah, I, yeah right I, I think there are two things but those two things are 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 tied up with one another. If we had an agreed upon method, then you could have peer review, but it's really hard to have peer review outside of like empirical studies or law and society um, when we don't really have particularly good ways of knowing what's good work. And so the third, the third manifestation of the same thing is uh, the fact that there's also not a canon that we uh, enter into as PhD students Right. Who then know what to do when they become professors? So we're 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 not even we're not acculturated to a peer review system with an accepted methodology because there aren't either of those things. Right. No, so we, so when we are in JD, we're jumping over a bunch of stuff that PhD students do in in their programs. I mean, for so a long time, that. I thought this was a strength. Right. I thought that I thought that that was an enormous strength because it avoided jargon and it made it more likely for us to influence public debates. And I still think that the second thing is true, like because we don't have a canon. I mean, although Prosblog actually had a great canon project maybe five or six years ago, um, yeah, although we, because great, we don't have yeah. a canon, because we don't really have methods, um, it, it's just so much harder to become insular and jargony and retreat within the sub-discipline in a way that makes it impossible for lawyers and judges to, to translate the work for, for, for public use. So that's still true. But over time, I've become convinced that, you know, the result really is that a higher proportion of what we do is total nonsense as compared to other disciplines. And I don't mean total right. nonsense in some, like, um, absolute nonsense way. I mean, like, total nonsense as opposed to good work. Like, there's just mistakes. There's mistakes on the law. There's mistakes. There's obvious missing of prior, you know, scholarship. Um, you know, there's, there's bad, bad arguments. There's bad normative arguments at the end of every article. It's just a lot of bad stuff. Um, and I don't think there's as much bad stuff, although there's bad stuff. I don't think there's as much bad stuff in disciplines with agreed upon methods. Yeah. So that's it. That's the question. Is it about agreed upon? There is a, um, a characteristic of law which differs from other fields. And that is, you know, law as against other fields is the one, you know, is the field in which we have to answer questions that arise. Uh, you know, two people fight, they go to court and we have to decide. Um and so it's that discipline where it's the discipline in which we have to make um, good guesses in the absence of good evidence. And I guess there's a question of whether that um, necessity needs to carry over into legal scholarship. You know, yeah. is legal scholarship about figuring out how, given the state of human knowledge in, you know, the, the many, many other fields, how those bear uh, on a question that we must answer, even if they don't provide a rigorous answer? So in some ways, the whole field is about what to do in the absence of rigor um, and using, you know, using rigorous methods when we can. Um, but I don't know how much legal scholarship should be about, you know, abstaining from answering those questions courts have to answer when we don't necessarily have uh, rigorous answers. Yeah, I mean, so I feel mixed and I think that your view is, is both flattering and, and, um, and optimistic and I'm, I'm definitely drawn to it. Um, and I think that you know, that's why I still write blog posts sometimes, although I write a lot less than I used to. I think it's fair yeah. to say. Um, because I think, you know, there's definitely times where, you know, which I, th I think a blog post is basically like scholarship. Um, I think it's a form of scholarship for me, and so there's times where I want to say something. Uh, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, there, the lack of being able to say and have people agree that X is, is bad 
um, you know, really makes um, makes room for a lot of people saying super silly stuff. And, um, you know, especially when we wade into areas where we don't know a lot about, which we do all the time, empirics, for example, there's a great, I think, a really good piece in the Stanford Law Review, I think from last year by David Engstrom about um, the nature of empirical scholarship about civil procedure. And I say that it's great, even though he said really nice things about my work. So in, <laughs> I went to school with David, actually. Yeah, yeah like you have to he's be great. He's great. He's great. And, and, and I feel embarrassed praising the piece because he praises me. And so obviously, like, what's the point? But um, <laughs> I mean, he really says, like, look at all these terrible papers and how they and how they've taken us down the wrong path because people just don't know what they don't know. It's not like they're dumb people. They're smart people. They just don't know what they're doing. And they, you know, they boldly waded forward and they came up with answers that were normative answers and they tried to push courts in a particular direction based on their priors or based on what they even saw in the data. And, and you know, a moment's reflection or a moment's sort of training and method would have, have cautioned them not to, not to hit send, either in a blog right. post or, or in an article form. So, you know, that article, you know, I mean, basically it's an article about like the caution, the, the worry that because we have no standards and we have no gates um, um, and we have such unbounded confidence, um, mm-hmm. uh, we really, we really, I mean, as, as Duncan Black says, we, we really can get into some trouble. Not in actual trouble, but, you know, I guess the other, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the other sort of thing lurking is that a lot of our confidence and a lot of our ability to do all of this stuff is founded on a business model that's no longer, um, how to put it, um, true. So, um, you know, as law schools have to rely more on their central universities to, you know, keep the lights on, the ability of law schools to proceed without worked out understandings of what is going to be good and bad work, uh, that's going to be tough, right? So it's easy for a law school to say, give all of my folks tenure when they're revenue positive because, you know, no one, no one, no one wants to say no to the gravy train. But, you know, I don't think there's one revenue positive law school in this country today. Um, uh, and so if, if in, in the world where we're all relying on central universities, you know, it's just different, right? Yeah. I get, and, and I wonder too, um, in that same vein, whether, cause we, st- the, the discipline is different in terms of having fewer bounds and fewer, uh, um, objective ways to describe works as good or bad, but it's similar to other disciplines, um, in the expectation of, it's not exactly publish or perish, but it is, you know, publish you know that's the one way we can say that someone's doing bad work is if they're not publishing enough mm-hmm. um but what you're expected to publish is again the 70 page article on kind of a clockwork annual basis and it's almost more ridiculous because it's in march or it's in august right so there is like this drumbeat of get out this piece of a certain length with a certain number of footnotes every year um other disciplines might actually you know they publish more papers but they you know they the idea of the least publishable unit is um, maybe a little bit stronger there, but also um, there's less of a need in, in some other disciplines to adorn your ideas with, you know, basically the story from the beginning, uh, like a lot of law review articles do. I mean, so uh, I, I, I was at this conference, um, Noah Feldman basically said, you know, if he was advising uh, law review editors, he would say, why don't you start a journal that basically says we're going to accept 5,000 word articles. So sort of like, you know, a bigger version of Jotwell, um, a smaller version of Gels, something between those two, and you know, no, yeah. and like the rules would be no literature reviews, no normative sections, no introduction, um, just the section two. Um, yeah, and you know, he's like, and everyone would love you. And I said, I, I mean, I didn't quite say it because he's no Feldman; he's not interested in my view. But um, you know, my, my, I, I don't know that actually the economic incentives of law schools are are supportive of that, right? So. I just don't. I don't know that law professors are are ready, willing, and able to change to that format. In part because you know the reason why we have the adornment on the articles is because no one knows anything, and so the adornment shows that you know something. Um, and without, well, I think there's another way. I mean, so I, I've been kind of beating the drumbeat for a while that SSRN is almost all the way there, but it's missing a few key characteristics that would that would help kind of break free of the constraints of historic form and this um, problem of no one knows anything. Right. So the, you know, right now people measure success on SSRN by the number of downloads, which if you think about it is 
somewhat ridiculous because you haven't read it, you know, when you download it. So there's no way to figure out whether it was any good oh, other than you know, a lot of... I measure Go the ahead. ratio between downloads and, and um, articles, uh, downloads and abstract views. <laughs> so that, well, that means like how good is your abstract at getting people to read it? It's even worse. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's actually a bad one too. <laughs> but I was thinking, so if you have, if you have uh, something like SSRN, um, ideally where um, you could download the article in PDF, but you could also just read it right on the screen and copy and paste and... Um, we had a whole episode about Markdown last week. So I actually think you could do something really cool with uh, um, providing different ways of consuming uh, the various articles. But something like SSRN, but where um, you can consume the article in different ways and you can add um, anonymous or non-anonymous endorsements, mm. comment threads, and where you can link a new thing that you write to the other thing, uh, to the original thing. Um, you know, so you can easily generate, you read something, you want to generate a response, you can essentially do what is like a new blog post, but this new blog post would be within the SSRN structure, uh, and it would be clearly, you know, linked to it. Um, this would be, you know, cause after all, I think our, our bottom line goal in legal academia is to create new knowledge and to refine existing knowledge, to weed out, you know, uh, what appeared to be good knowledge, but which in fact was ignorance. Uh, you know, this is our goal um and i guess we've been doing it the best we have been able to up until the electronic revolution uh which is you know gather together the best thoughts from around the country package them into paper volumes and send them out uh regularly but we we don't have those constraints anymore so we can do the kind of like uh uh feedback and um uh voting and and responses and articles of all kinds of different lengths from three paragraphs to uh, what would be the equivalent of 500 pages, all in the same space, right? And all responding to one another. Um, anyway, I think if you had these endorsements, uh, the opportunity for, like I said, anonymous kind of thumbs up and then uh, uh, comments and then public endorsements, that, there may, that may be a re- better reputational currency. That's really what I thought BE Press was going to do. Um, and then it just, you know, with these electronic repositories, I, I, I yeah, would yeah. they were going to go that direction. And then I think as it turns out, I, I mean, I don't know why. I mean, I really can't figure out what the what SSRN is doing and what BE Press is doing. They both seem so stuck um, in, their, in, their, in their current business models. Um, I've been getting this weird set of emails from someone who says, you know, in 2001, Apple changed this and then Facebook changed that in 2009. And in 2014, we're changing scholarship. And I was like, huh. Now, what is, is that ResearchGate? Yeah, something. I don't know what it was. Um, the search game. I, I couldn't figure out what it was, but I thought, oh, that would be really cool if there was some actual innovation in in how we distribute scholarship. Because, you know, for example, the thing that's come out in this last year, which is the, um, oh, what's it called? The thing that all the journals pushed toward, they moved toward, the publishing oh, platform. Scholastica. Scholastica is a nightmare in its own way. Um, and, you know, it's good for the journals, but really bad for authors. I mean, it, it moves back to a, a totally, I think, um, a really bad set of models. And it's not, it's not open access. It doesn't have the kinds of attributes that you'd really want it to. Right. Yeah, I, I always understood that to be more of a, of a back end for law reviews coupled with a uniform front end for totally, submission. No, totally true. Right, right. So it's, it's, but it's being used. I mean, it's basically like people don't know what to do. They, they're just desperate to try to find a way to get published in Harvard. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, through the several thousand law reviews. Uh, I, I don't know what the possibilities, I don't know what the possibilities of this are. Uh, I, I saw something about ResearchGate and, and maybe, maybe Bill Gates is behind it or oh, yeah, invested it's research, in it, it's right? It ResearchGate. Yeah, I think it's ResearchGate and it appears to be like a social network for academics, right. but where the information exchanged is not water cooler information necessarily, but, but is, you know, research. So it appear, you know, it might be like the 21st century version of SSRN. Right. Um, Which I guess wouldn't uh, be a bad thing. I mean, you know, at Concurring Opinions, we've talked a bunch of times about turning the blog into a magazine um, of some kind. Right. Um, you know, t- having, I mean, one of the problems is we like to have more symposia, but symposia don't really work particularly well in a blog format because it's hard to talk to one another. Um, yeah. And it's hard to sort of talk with reference to common text because of this reverse chronology problem. Um, and the form doesn't feel like it's a great fit. So we talked about a magazine, and you know we we have some money because of advertising um, 
to do it. But, I, you know, in part, the incentives are hard to figure out. Like, why would you do that? Why would, why would any law professor spend time designing a platform um, when they don't have to? And they don't get any, they're not getting institutional credit for it. It would just truly be like a labor of love or an entrepreneurial moment. And, um, you know, I think, you know, it keeps on fizzing out. Although we just try to another site design. Um, you know, I think, you know, Dan Sola, for example, is on LinkedIn and he writes for LinkedIn and has, you know, 10 million followers, literally reading about him and privacy in a really direct way. And so LinkedIn's trying to become a content aggregator and content pusher. Are there 10 million users on LinkedIn who have not tried to delete their account? <laughs> I don't know. The- <laughs> it is like LinkedIn is the is the bane of my email existence, trying to get rid of all those notifications from LinkedIn. That's funny. But it, yeah. Uh, so I didn't know that they actually had that kind of platform because I, you know, yes, I had a LinkedIn account back in the day, he, but I've he never literally had, it. I'm just looking at it. 10 million was wrong. He has 238,000 followers reading his posts about privacy on LinkedIn. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. It's that's a, a lot. lot. In that's our world, 238,000 is a lot. Yeah. download rankings. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, so what do you think about, I mean, so from the, if you were, um, I don't know, in charge of like maybe making a new law school or, or, or a new administrator in a law school and you had the authority or power or otherwise had the ability to, um, to change what mattered, to change the institutional currency in a way that had, uh, you know, and, and you wanted to exercise that power in a way that would actually advance, you know, the positive state of the world, of the legal academic world. Uh, would you push people to move away from the lockstep one article uh, you know, one major article a year with some shorter symposium type pieces, the book every few years or something like that. How would you, or would you want maybe different people to explore different avenues or, you know, how do we go about changing things so that, you know, in, in ways that maybe increase the amount of rigor, but also get rid of a lot of the artifice, which is um, maybe a connected problem. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I mean, that's a really hard question because, you know, even if you were starting your own place, even if you were your own czar, you know, you're operating with an institutional constraint. And so, you know, look at, you know, Chemerinsky creates a law school and it ends up looking like every other law school in a lot of ways. You know, it's exactly yeah. the same prestige game. And, you know, if the point of the law school is, you know, essentially, you know, do some good and also get people jobs, um, maybe in reverse order. Um, I don't know that actually any dean has any actual, I mean, they, they have the illusion of control, but I don't think they can do anything particularly innovative um, in as one dean. Um, I think this is something that would be much better coming from a place like AALS if AALS was a functioning organization, which it's not. Um, a functioning, you know, scholarly organization. It functions. Yeah. Functions organization. Yes. And any changes, any changes you you make w- would get filtered through uh, the situation of a law school within the university, right? Which, which would raise um, important questions, uh, worthy questions about the. Again, the training of uh, people in those other departments, how it differs from our training, the existence of standards of performance or standards of achievement in those places that don't necessarily exist or translate well uh, for the law school. So, um, and and I don't know, I have no sense at all of what, you know, how are professors in economics departments, in sociology departments, in mathematics departments, in material science departments, how are they making use of these alternative channels of communication among themselves or to the audiences that they want to connect to? Like, I I don't know. Um, Only about econ, just because I happen to read econ law professor, uh, econ professor blogs, but I have like, what are others in astronomy blogging community? I assume that there is. But I don't know yeah. what it constitutes of it. It's exactly it's an interesting set of questions. And you're you know you're right. You can't do that much in 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 innovation because of the internal pressures either. Which exactly it's exactly the right set of points. I mean, if I was in control of a law school and I wanted to do something about scholarship, the number one thing I would do is I would make the journal double blind peer reviewed, um, because I think that's something you can control, and I think it'd be better. And I think I would also say that. You know, ten or fifteen thousand word limit on articles is a pretty good is a pretty good first rough cut. Uh, I, I mean, I agree with Noah in that way. I'm not sure that it's a strategy that works, but I, I think it's a strategy that feels better, um, even if it doesn't work, than the current strategy. Um, now, let me say, if I could interject in, uh, uh, about some stuff you guys were saying before several minutes ago, uh, I haven't read this piece, uh, uh, 
Engstrom, did you say? Was that his yeah. name? Yeah, yeah, David Engstrom. David Engstrom. Uh, I haven't read that piece, uh, but the thing I was rem- the, the thing I thought about as you guys were describing it, um, while it's true that uh, the law reviews are <laughs> jam packed with stuff we might say uh, with the benefit of a little bit of hindsight and a little bit of reflection and a little bit of additional study, we might say, oh, "Wow, that's a piece of crap." That 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 thing in that article is just wrong in these demonstrable ways, blah blah blah. Right. Um, that that's true, um, and it's also true that uh, we can get mistakes labeled socially as mistakes faster, I think, and easier than is true in some fields, precisely because of the lack of peer review mechanisms. So the same, in other words, the same thing that is allowing the crap to become present allows us to identify it as such uh, publicly faster. A peer review winds up reproducing lots of constraints about conventional wisdom and accepted, you know, sort of received truths. That canon can become a straitjacket in that other field. Yeah. And so if, if you realize, oh my gosh, we've all been making this mistake for the past five years with this particular methodology, well, you know, you, you might have a tough time actually getting a fair hearing on that point. So, so this thing can be both a weakness and a strength. Uh, I don't think it's all downside. No, I agree. I agree with that. I do. I think that's true. Um, and, and it's sort of, so, you know, how do you value, how do you, how do you put those two facts up against, you know, in a world with peer review before the fact, rather than what we now have, which is essentially peer review after the fact, um, if you if you go to a peer review before the fact world, um, you would undoubtedly be making gains on the you know reduce the the, the stunning crap quotient um, uh, or SCQ as I will hereafter call it. Um, <laughs> the, you can re- you can reduce that, but but you could also um, be maximizing the you know stunning blind spot quotient um, and 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 on a dynamic basis would I rather be in the one place or the other? And I don't actually know. I, I did actually, I, I was a grad student in psychology before leaving that field and, and entering law school. Uh, so I don't have a PhD in psychology. I have a master's degree, but I saw it long enough to see that, you know, peer review can be inhibiting in some really unhealthy ways. Yeah, it's true. Yes. Same in math. I mean, it can be, but, um, I mean, it's not, know. I mean, this is a sort of an old debate and the question is whether and what do blogs do? And, you know, you could imagine a world where there's peer review, but there's also blogs. So you in some way get the best of both worlds. People can innovate yeah. in the blog form. They can percolate ideas. They can have criticism. They can have a robust discussion. But then the, you know, the higher, you know, the higher or the finished form of that discussion occurs in the journals, um, which wouldn't be a terrible, you know, wouldn't be in, in a lot of ways a terrible thing. The thing that we have in law that's odd is that we have a, a totally open form network in every possible way. Um, and, and yet people have to be evaluated, um, for the purposes of tenure and promotion, uh, or, or hiring. And the, the signals that the open form networks send are so incredibly noisy that, um, people can from outside of our world can pretty fairly say, you know, um, wow, I, I don't think you're as a field, as a discipline, I don't think you have rigor. And I think that they are correct, um, we don't have rigor, and you're correct that the the you know you get something from not having rigor. You get innovation, um, and you know maybe looking back over the last fifty years, you could say, "Wow, law scholarship has innovated a lot and brought a lot of good things to the world." I, I'm not sure. I mean, that seems like an empirical claim. Um, I, I don't know that it's true um, that there's been real amazing ideas in law scholarship as compared to other fields that have that have really been um, socially useful. Um, most of the big innovations in law scholarship are, are from outside of the field, from outside of the field in, from critical race studies to, to, to L&E to empirical studies. Um, all of those are outside in innovations. They're not, they're not generated from inside the legal academy. Okay, so but isn't that kind of what we do? Um, uh, we bring the state of human knowledge to bear on disputes on conflicts. I mean, uh, 
if we have a specialty, it is, um, I think we've, we've kind of mastered the Langdellian arts of treating like cases alike and thinking about analogy. And, and if there's innovation, it's in understanding innovations outside of the field and bringing them to bear on questions within the kind of discourse that has to occur uh, in a conflict resolution scenario where there must be an answer. Yeah, I get that. I don't, I, right. But the question is whether or not the freedom that, that not having rigor ha- offers makes that more or less likely. Yeah. I, well, that, that's what I was going to say that, um, that too, I think that the, in a way we do have the worst of all worlds because we have a totally open network, as you say, which, which means that anybody who wants to write something, who, anybody who has an idea that they think is correct can publish that idea, whether or not it is correct. Um, in, in if, some they, if you just put enough, yeah, if you just put enough work into something, you can publish it. Um, and, uh, uh, and so, you know, a, a definite improvement over that, I think would be, uh, because I actually like the openness of that. Um, I, I like the fact that there aren't kind of anonymous gatekeepers, uh, small groups of them, like, you know, our typical and peer reviewed, um, fields. Um, but we could have, you know, almost peer review on steroids with this kind of networked open SSRN that I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and I think it would work and also it would open up the kinds of forms. And I think the forms that we've had are just as, um, stultifying as the, um, as, as the perceptions about the kinds of things we can talk about. Right. Um, the fact that it has to be basically this length, that it has to have an introduction that two L's will, uh, that will resonate with two L's, uh, second year law students, uh, that it needs to have, um, at least a few footnotes on each page. Um, you know, in other words, all the proxies of rigor that come from length and apparent citation. Uh, I think you can get, you can make a lot of progress on that front um, by creating a, a denser kind of network of academic communication. Uh, and SSRN is, is a step toward that. And it's, they're so close and yet they, they haven't been able to, uh, to seal it. I think they've spent effort on things like uh um, you know, uh, being able to pay for a printed copy, um, trying to implement some method to um, digitize the citations so that they can, on their own, connect their network. Um, and I don't know that any of that's been successful when there are a few obvious things, you know, whether it's dig style comments or Facebook style likes. Were they even trying those things? I mean, that's what you say. They, like, I've seen no evidence that they're even trying those things. That's what I'm saying. They've, they've spent time on, I think, the wrong things. Now, this is just from the outside looking in. And so, you know, ob- anytime you criticize something like that, there are all kinds of reasons why they may have tried something and failed it or sure. they have plans to do something and it hasn't materialized. Or, you know, they, they know things that I don't. But it, it sure seems like there are ways they can make progress on the kinds of things we've been talking about that are, given the infrastructure they have, pretty, like, low-hanging. Yeah. Although I think that uh, the other thing to sort of re- realize is that the audience, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this. I'm, I'm just not, I mean, for, for, for most um, social peer production problems, you need a, a, an audience of sufficient size who's interested in participating. Right. And, you know, there are a lot of law professors in this country, but there are actually not that many who I think would be interested in participating in this kind of project. Um, and I just, you know, you wonder whether or not you'd have enough folks to make it work. Yeah, I guess though that if um, the the number, I think the percentage that would be interested will be increasing in time. Oh and yeah, sure, no, no, right. So the only yeah. this is a ripeness question. Absolutely. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, this is just like is is today the year or is twenty twenty the year uh, or twenty thirty? You know, um, it is it is still the case. I think that probably of the law professors in this country, half haven't published an article in the last five years. Um, I think there's still a lot of faculties where. You say one one is the norm, um, but I don't. A most people in that faculty doesn't don't do one one, and then there's a lot of faculties where one one isn't the norm. Um, I think that you can, um, um, if you go to a conference that's sufficiently large enough, you'll meet a lot of people who don't write, and you yeah. just don't know them otherwise. I mean, you only know them from going to conferences. So that the the critical mass might not actually be there to transform the nature of scholarship to something that's um, peer reviewed in this open way. And I think too, the, um, the number of people see, so part of what makes, would make this network work is not necessarily increasing 
the number of writers or the frequency of writing the big pieces, but increasing the number of readers. Yeah. Who right? And you, that, but you would do think, by changing the way the things are written. The, sure. Exactly. If they are ten pages, fifteen yeah. pages equivalent, or if they are kind of connected and they're more blog post like. Yeah. Um. You know, there's no reason why rigor can't exist within a framework of electronic writing. Yeah. Um, no, and also, I think the 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 barrier to participating in a in a in a helpful way as a commenter as a as a someone who's providing feedback that goes into this uh bin of things that that are there durably um so for example uh you know i teach antitrust law some of what i write is kind of ip slash antitrust intersection uh, but most of what i write is simply ip uh i i i it would be very hard for me, I think, uh, to make a uh, a material contribution to the antitrust literature on most antitrust topics without a whole lot more time and effort than I'm prepared to put into it right now. But I do think I could probably, in reading a piece that I might find interesting that might help me in the next time I teach the course, I might be able to read that and there might be an instance there where a comment that I made because of some things I know about IP issues might be germane to that piece. So it's, and, and that barrier has been lowered. I can now make a contribution that doesn't require me to have written my own piece. Right. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and I mean, the infrastructure maps I, I don't that know, up. But, well, the advice yeah. I give to people who are just starting in the academy is for them to sort of read a lot of scholarship and then write people comments, um, download everything new on SSRN that seems interesting and send the authors comments. Um, I think it's yeah. it's the best way to engage yourself in a field, and most people like literally would love to have anything commented about their papers because the <laughs> so job true. is such a lonely job and yeah. such an isolating job that the idea that you could have interaction with a reader is, I mean, downloads are such a terrible proxy for interaction. Um, yeah, I think it would be it'd be great to have a forum where those comments were you know easily and easily hosted and easily understood and easily made. I think we've got time for one more thing. Okay. What's that I thing? Pro- I, I propose um, a return to speed trap law. Oh my gosh, really? Well, I, th- I think Dave would have some really cool things to say about it. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and this is, this is an interest of the po- an ongoing legal topic of interest to the podcast. Okay. Um, Joe, Joe, do you want to set it up? Since you, you may know- be having trouble hearing me. So. Oh, okay. Do, do you know, I mean, are you aware, Dave, that there is this century plus jurisprudence of... Uh, people warning other people about the fact that there's a speed trap in the road. A speed trap in the road, yes. So, so you you know you can go, be driving by and you could flash your headlights. Yes. Yeah. So, but there are cases about this that are over a hundred years old in England from people warning other people about you know there are some police down the road. Okay. Uh, and so this issue of are you participating in the person's criminality by trying to warn them? Like is that in itself an offense? But let, let's let me People let's first. View. Yeah, Dave, Dave, <laughs> Dave. Let me ask. Can I? I'm going to ask you this. Have you ever warned anybody uh, of a speed trap by flashing your lights? Routinely. Yeah. Would you say that someone who routinely does not do that is a monster? Yes. Hmm. Nah. Well, well that's a hard. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um. I wouldn't say they're a monster. I just think it's denial of the duties we owe each other. <laughs> would you believe that oh so i, I, I mean, won't it's sort mention of like a, the kitty genovese you know fable oh my gosh so <laughs> so not warning someone of a speed trap you might as well be there plunging the knife into her torso yourself <laughs> come on yeah exactly no no um, what you don't real what you don't realize is that um of of me and christian i'm the one who can't actually remember ever having done this no ever having yeah well and in part <laughs> right, see now part of the issue is i don't actually remember seeing very many speed traps but beyond that um even when i do i don't know it just doesn't seem like there are other people around i just don't have recollections of doing this which is what the Genovese people apparently said. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like I should just go Florida, out and start like stabbing a weird people. Town that was in the Times, where basically they they made their entire existence on a speed trap, and and yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, essentially was a um, uh, a notably corrupt enterprise. Would it would it make a difference if the point of the speed trap was to make money for town as opposed to 
you know, just the ordinary highway patrol, would that matter to you? I to, to Joe to me, yeah. yeah. Um, I get. I guess it. I guess it would matter. I mean, the first thing I would worry about is that I had somehow wound up living in Florida. Yeah. Um, but the but the <laughs> I suppose I suppose I might worry about that. Of course, those folks would definitely haul you in for obstruction of justice. The people who are running that town would well, definitely. Dave, we actually you. saw we we on here highlighted a case or a portion of a case where a judge in dissent um, believed that this was obstruction of justice and actually cited cited Kant's universal imperative, categorical imperative, to suggest that we um, that we owe duties to one another to rat on each other. It's it's unbelievable. I thought, yeah. um, and it's. I mean that. I mean, there are great. There are a lot of reasons I'm not a crim theorist, and and this really seems to highlight one of them. Um, I don't <laughs> understand that at all. How can that possibly be true? I mean, part of it is, of course, that the the nature of the the the, the wrongdoing is so dependent on being caught. I mean, it's not. No one. There's no, there's nothing morally wrongful with speeding. It's a. Uh, um, it's. It's it's wrong because of the effects it has in, in bad instances. But even if that's not, I mean, I I just maybe I should rethink this. I've never ever thought that it's <laughs> wrongful to to warn someone, and I've almost always thought it's compelled. I've I've well, certainly the, the, been in situations where I passed a cop, and I thought to myself, why didn't those those weasels on the other side of the road tell me something? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I hope they hit a traffic jam. That's well, brilliant. The, the usual distinction that comes up in these cases is whether um is whether the warning is meant to encourage someone to comply with the law or whether the warning is meant to um uh indicate the presence of officers to evade the law and so we came up with these hypotheticals like the one we Joe and I talked about a few weeks ago is the uh you know you, you see someone about to get out a a gun to rob a liquor store or something like that and maybe put a bottle of liquor in their waistband and uh and you nod and you point at the police officers right um are you encouraging them not to commit a crime that they haven't yet committed or are you being complicit in in innovating and part of this too is like are you helping someone delay the commission of a crime to more opportune time or not and it makes total sense to me that when you flash your lights what you're really saying to that person is um uh hold off on your speeding until you pass the cop and then go back to speeding again yeah or or another way to put it is that is the cop is sneakily trying to catch you um, in in an activity which no one thinks is wrong. That's the right. That's the. I think that's the real issue. I mean, uh, um, would you fly? Well, let's put it this way: Would you flash your lights at someone who was traveling in a school zone, which is marked at twenty five, which is really quite low? But they say they were traveling at sixty yeah, miles. That's a, it's a great example. No, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah. Right. Right. So it really has to do with like what we think the law really should be. Yeah. Right. Right. The law should be, you know, something closer to if you're driving recklessly. Yeah, um, this is like the Montana so-called yeah, the Montana, speed right, limit for prevailing a while. speeds, yeah. right? Right, which turned out to be completely unworkable. Yeah, you yeah, need. There, it turns out that even for people who so want standards, a, sometimes a you need a rule. So this is maybe an example of where my yeah. moral intuitions lead us down the the path to chaos. Uh, <laughs> and it's unfortunate hey, but, that they do, um, because I, I would I would hate to have to surrender my my intuitions makes life yeah, much really. more complicated. Um, no, in, in the Scott part, against you know, Harris... Part, part of it really does feel like it's, um, a, you know, the, you're, you're, you're in a deal with the other side um, of the highway. You know, you, you, yeah. you both are kind of... You both are in these machines that can cause each other death by, by turning your wheel just a little bit. You're not going to do that. You're going to behave as well as you can by not gawking at them in an accident, which helps everyone involved. And, and if... And if there's a speed trap, you're going to flash your lights. It's part of the, the social glue. Um, but, you know, it, it may be the case that the social glue is based on a total weird set of probability judgments. Like we all think that if, if there was um, a Montana-like regime, both we and others would be better off from it. But we're all wrong. Um, and, yeah. that would, you know, that's, that would be an example of um, a pretty unfortunate fact. No, but it's, it, this is an example of how the law that we have written down is not necessarily the law by which we all live. And we understand that there are kind of costs to writing a law which is stricter than we all uh, want to live by. And one of those costs is that occasionally we're going to get stung by, say, a speeding ticket, which we all agree is not you know, particularly just, but there's just no better way of organizing ourselves. Right, right. 
But uh, Joe really should warn people, don't don't you think? Huh. I, I mean, I think there's a special place in hell for Joe. <laughs> Look, I'm, I think it could be the case that I've warned people many times and just don't recall it. I think the I think let's cur- let's take the lesser step of me like taking some ginkgo biloba or something like that and remembering better. Uh, um, see, I, I rather than cons- now, you're basically flashing your eyes all the time. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it, it may be that you've warned people, but other times you just really creep them out. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, Joe is significantly backtracking because after admitting to this monstrous behavior a few weeks ago, his first position was, well, the reason he doesn't do it is because people can't see lights during the day. No, he, that's that, you're you're, you're, that was you're once you again misrepresenting what Ugh. I said, which you've done many times. <laughs> um, but but um, but no, I, this is this is one of the reasons why it, do, it doesn't make sense to me that I would have done it. Because I agree, it's hard to see lights during the day. I had to I did that little test in the parking garage, as I told you about. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, this is yeah, it's strange to me. But um, all right, all right, guys, I, thanks so much, Dave, for thanks, joining Dave. us. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you for inviting me. It's been really fun. Cool. All right, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye, Bye guys.